Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. I got a lot of energy today. Yeah. I don't know why. I'm just, I have, I have pep in my step. All right. I'm walking around with some new pocket money <laughs> and just feeling a whole bunch of what? those like, good vibes. You mean just money? Like you, you got a raise or something or... You know, well, I I may have done a little bit of consulting about <laughs> some stuff. Yeah, no, but p- p- like pocket money, like when your mom gives you pocket money. Yeah, yeah, it's pocket money. You know, oh. you go out and you buy yourself some dreams with it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't p- pocket money. That's I I I don't know. I mean, I I don't even carry bills in my wallet anymore. It's just a credit card. It's uh, like well, tap to I, pay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds pretty futuristic. Well, Looks like me. I'm 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 stuck in the past, and you you're living in the future. <laughs> Would you stop talking like a 1920s gangster? What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm stuck down here. You're you're in a, you're living a future, kid. Yeah. <laughs> what is, what is happening? You got you got pocket money, you got energy, and you want to talk about the future. I do because okay. as we're moving from the past to the future, things are going to come at a pretty rapid pace. Uh-huh. And some of this stuff almost smacks of sci-fi and a little bit of horror. Nice. So, of course, loyal audience, it is an alternate week, and you all know what that means. Do you know? If you don't know, then welcome to every alternate week. Where we do Journal Club! Yay! Journal Club! So One of these days, we're going to have a sound effect. 
We have lots of sound effects. It's just they're mostly created by me. <laughs> they are. There's a lot of mouth sound effects, and then there's like we have to explain that there's a visual component that goes with it. But this yes, is my visual medium. sound effects. Yeah. <laughs> Kermit Arms! Yay! There you go. So this week mm. I rounded up a whole bunch of stories that have been appearing on the internet focusing on the world of tomorrow <laughs> you sound like the announcer at epcot that's what i was going for that or futurama <laughs> i like it so let's let's begin by talking about magnets not just for mutants anymore what <laughs> What what just for mutants? Magnets are everywhere. We use them all the time. I'm sorry. I I was reading a lot of Dawn of X and House <laughs> of X lately, so Magneto's been at the forefront of my mind. Well, and yeah, now the, Yeah. And now I'm realizing instead of being a supervillain, he really could have just been an infectious disease doctor. I mean, I was thinking more along the lines of being a radiologist, right? Because he could be just like a walking MRI. Well, Thanks to existing research, mm -hmm. we obviously know it's possible to force magnetic nanoparticles to bind to specific cells in the body. And let's be frank, I don't entirely understand how an MRI works. All right. <laughs> okay. That's fair. But while we use magnets to make cells show up in images, biochemical mm -hmm. scientist George Frodsham wondered whether the same technique might allow doctors to remove cells from the blood. Just kind of magnetize them out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is something that we've been trying for a very long time. You, you stick something like an antibody, uh, and then the antibody has a little you know, piece of metal or something like that, or a magnet on one end, and then the antibody binds to the target on a cell surface or whatever you want. And then you turn on the magnet and make that antibody go where you tell it, and it drags whatever else you want to drag it with you. Kicking and screaming. Yeah, usually. Now, this is not the first time we've come up with this general idea of attaching something to an antibody, but usually it's to help a different drug better bind to a cell or mm -hmm. a fluorescing compound to make it light up when we study it. So while this is not a new idea per se, it's a new application of it. And scientist Frodsham created Metasieve, a treatment technology that works similarly to dialysis and if you're not sure how dialysis works go back and listen to episodes one and two of this season mm -hmm. yeah we talked all about it this machine removes a patient's blood it infuses it with magnetic nanoparticles designed to bind to a specific disease and then uses those same magnets by i don't know let's go with a doctor who reference here reversing the polarity <laughs> to draw out and trap the targeted cells before pumping the filtered blood back into the patient. This is really, really interesting because it's an inside of the body thing that I have done many times in the lab. This is old, old technology, Josh. So um, I can I can do this in a test tube, right? I can add antibodies that are directed towards a particular protein. 
And then I can take a bunch of cells that I want to culture and I say, okay, I have a target protein that I actually want to purify out of this soup of cells. So I burst them open and then I add my antibody that has a conjugated metal particle on it and I let that antibody bind. So I I put it in the tube and I just rock the tube back and forth for a few hours and then I just apply a magnet and, you know, apply the magnet to the outside and all the little antibodies with the magnetic particles just come on down to a certain spot on my tube. I get rid of what I don't want uh, by just, you know, pouring out the tube, still keeping the magnet in contact. And then, you know, I wash those antibodies a couple of times in solution, add water, take the antibodies out again with the magnet and do that a few times. And now... I have a purified protein from tens of thousands of proteins that are swimming in the cellular soup. But this is something that we've always done on the bench outside of any living system. To apply this to a living system, I'm a little scared <laughs> because you are taking, you know, cells and proteins and things and like kind of ripping them away with probably pretty high powered magnets. But the concept is exactly the same. This is a tried and true method. If this technology pans out, doctors could run a person's blood through the through this machine several times until their levels of disease are low enough to be successfully wiped out by drugs or even the patient's own immune system. Imagine you come in with an infection that is resistant to all known antibiotics, and this is sure. not a hard scenario to imagine. Right. But you know what it's not resistant to? Magnets. And you attach these magnetized particles and you have them identify your disease and you then filter the patient's blood and each pass through the magnets pull out more and more until you reach a point where there's so few bacteria you can simply overwhelm them with a antibiotic they either were resistant to through sheer numbers or you decrease it to a low enough point that your body's own immune system can gang up and savagely beat the few remaining bacteria. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the numbers game that we play with antibiotics right now. We're not trying to eliminate every last damn bug. We're just trying to pitch the battle uh, in the direction of the host so that, you know, the bacteria can't win out. Um, this is really amazing, Josh. It has all kinds of applications because we have antibodies attached to, you know, magnetic nanoparticles. That's been forever. And so engineering the right antibody, finding the right target, you know, attaching the nanoparticle, these are all well understood processes. We don't have to reinvent anything. The problems are really going to come where are the antibodies that you use going to be compatible with the host? Are they going to have off-target effect? Will you be able to, you know, magnetically ferrese whatever you want out of the blood, whether it's a bunch of leukemia cells or whether it's, you know, a bunch of bacteria? These are still hurdles that we have to overcome, but we're coming closer and closer and it's looking damn cool. And in fact, there's two studies already in the pipeline. In fact, the first one is when it's set for 2020, if the United Kingdom's Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, which I believe is the FDA counterpart right. in yeah. the United Kingdom, And the first trial is going to be on patients infected with the malaria parasite, which Mm -hmm. is 
great for a couple reasons. One, they're sort of cherry picking their disease because malaria is naturally magnetic thanks to its consumption of its own iron-based waste product. Yeah, yeah, that's actually what it does is it breaks down your red cells. It likes to eat your hemoglobin. That being said, you don't want to just direct you know, a magnet towards iron containing stuff. Or yes, yes. We've all seen what Magneto did to Wolverine. Well, no, <laughs> you're, you're going to take out all the persons, the human beings, iron as well from their intact red blood cells. So, and you, we don't have, have a healing factor just yeah. yet. I know <laughs> you don't have to be such a killjoy. Yeah, that's exciting. And then um, the second trial is against uh, bacteria in the bloodstream. So uh, bacteria causing sepsis. Fill the blood with antibodies against the bacteria. The antibodies have a magnetic nanoparticle. Pass the blood through, through a dialysis filter first, through a coil that has a magnet on it. And then, you know, the the bacteria with the antibody and the thing get trapped. And then your blood filters back and comes back into your body. And the bacteria they're going to target in the 2021 study are ones known for causing sepsis, such as E. coli, Staph aureus, and Pseudomonas, things like that, which, you know, once in the bloodstream have a high tendency to become drug resistant and cause some pretty severe uh, sepsis and organ failure. Yeah. Guys, we've found a beautiful article in Nanomaterials. It is a beautiful big review on a bunch of applications for magnetic nanoparticles in medicine. Glance through it. It's got a bunch of beautiful things. We were talking about using this for therapy. You can likewise use this technology for things like diagnosis because, you know, oh, I can't find where the tumor cells are. Let's do an antibody against the tumor cells and attach a little nano particle to that, let it go through the body, you know, sit down on the cancer cells, and then, you know, read it with an MRI. And uh, those little nanoparticles would light up and you'd say, ah, there's the cancer. So th this is a really, really cool trick. You get a ton of, ton of applications. The idea of using magnets to fight disease is fascinating and one which you can't really evolve a resistance to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at least as, I mean, you can't have bacteria suddenly be like, oh, yeah, well, screw <laughs> you guys. <laughs> no, 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 because the antibodies that we're going to engineer are antibodies that have been around forever. Sometimes they can change their outer membrane or something like that, but they're, they're very reliable, these little antibodies. The wonderful thing about these, is, Josh, is they're one-shots, right? They're not, you know, using a compound which goes out into the body and circulates and circulates and circulates. You're really just using that metal conjugated antibody once and then you know you'll use a different one for the different case of sepsis so um it's it's really really awesome uh, so let's move on to our next story and santosh what is your favorite movie that takes place in the future like if you had to choose a film future to live in mm. Yeah, uh, a film future. Uh, I am a big Star Trek fan. Medical advancements, and you have scientific advancements, and all that kind of a thing. You also have warp drive technology. Right now, with the technology we have, you know, we it would take like lifetimes, several, to get to the closest star. Um, so we'd probably need something that's a little like. Oh, you remember the Fifth Element? Well, of course. 
Lilu yeah. multipass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Corbin Dallas multipass. One of the little scenes is um, they put everybody to sleep on that shuttle that goes to Flost in Paradise, right? And the reason that they do that is because they want those bodies to kind of shut down and not experience aging because it may take a while to get the, the destination. So they go into like half sleep or I guess you'd call it like suspended animation. So we After probably this animation will be yeah. right. <laughs> well, it means you're keeping them alive and you're able to revive the person, but their biological processes have slowed way down such that they don't age so that, you know, if it takes years, decades, even like centuries to get someplace, your crew will still be like awake, healthy, able to complete their mission at the end of you know the the whole thing so fifth element is a great way of approaching that another one and a future that we're not terribly far from is demolition man oh the (laughs) demolition that's not a good future there's a bunch of people who are like suppressed and he has to blow everything up so that you know you can get equality again oh my god is is this the demolition man year I mean, well, like it may not be the demolition in a year, but they talk about the Schwarzenegger Presidential Library, oh, yeah. <laughs> and now all restaurants are Taco Bell, and there's, and there's class wars, and the San Angeles quake, and most importantly, how does our demolition man get there? Also through suspended animation. Yes, yeah, yeah. So just filled up and super cooled, and then boom. And then while he was sleeping, they like taught his brain all kinds of weird, fun skills for coping with his new life, like learning how to to crochet. (laughs) And people have access, people have access because of the climate. People use the three seashells instead of toilet paper. Uh, (laughs) They interact with others through virtual reality. People don't really get to experience human touch anymore. Uh I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I think we're already living in the demolition man future. (laughs) But but let's bring it back. But let's bring it back around to suspended animation, a very common sci-fi trope. And now something that is starting to work its way into medicine. Mm -hmm. And I I first learned about this watching a symposium from the New York Science Academy on a whole bunch of presentations on where do we go when we die Mm -hmm. and talking about methods and resuscitation and things. And one of the speakers was a Dr. Samuel Tisherman who stated that, you know, when a person suffers a severe trauma, like a stab or a gunshot wound, they can lose so much blood that the heart stops beating, which kind of makes standard CPR futile. In a, in a trauma situation, the reason CPR doesn't work is the whole point of CPR in standard settings is you compress the heart fast enough to move the blood, to move oxygenated blood through the body up to the brain. But if you've lost a huge amount of blood and you're banging on the heart, there's nothing that you're moving. And in those cases, survival depends on how fast you get the patient to the operating room. And that is what this suspended animation is meant to do, not cryogenically freeze you to survive, you know, years and years into the future, but to let you survive a couple hours into the future to give the surgeons longer time to work with you. So 
Dr. Tisherman actually is calling this emergency preservation and resuscitation, EPR, and the media has taken to calling it suspended animation because that's way sexier. (laughs) Well, and you know, to tell you the truth, Josh, this isn't very different from stuff that we already do. You know, when when someone gets open heart surgery, for instance, um, you know, their their blood circulation is put on bypass. Uh, and a lot of the time, you know, the, the heart is cooled down, you know, until it stops beating so that the, uh, the surgeon can work on it. Right. So, but that still entails getting the person to the bypass machine and right, surgically, right, this right. is, this is in the period, you know, you've been shot, you've been stabbed. And if taken carefully, if, if this procedure is carried out to its fullest, this is something that an ambulance team could carry around with itself, which you certainly can't do with a bypass machine. Sure. sure. Uh, That makes a ton of sense. So basically, you know, they rush to a shooting, someone's bleeding out. They, uh, and, and the way this works is, you know, you get saline, right. Or a saline analog and you get this thing down to 10 to 15 degrees Celsius. And you just circulate that fluid, um, throughout, you know, the person's entire body until they basically freeze from the out inside out. Um, and they uh, just stop. Have you seen frozen two yet? <laughs> As you mentioned, EPR involves rapidly cooling the body down. So the brain is at a chilly 10 to 15 degrees Celsius, which is about 50 to 59 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, mm-hmm. an Arctic vortex in California. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And this is done by pumping the body full of very cold, salty water. And the rationale is that cold organs, like the brain, require much less oxygen than they would otherwise. And that's the real trick, because it's the lack of significant oxygen that causes all damage in these trauma cases to the brain. You know, that's where you get brain damage from. That's where you get muscle damage, is not having enough oxygen. So rather than speeding up how fast we deliver blood with oxygen, we decrease the oxygen requirements. So once in this cooled down state, the patient can be taken to the operating room where surgeons can have up to two to three hours rather than a matter of minutes to get to work and repair the life-threatening damage. And then the patient is resuscitated using a cardiopulmonary bypass. So for those of you in the medical field, it's a much more extreme version of the Arctic Sun Protocol. Mm-hmm. Or uh, for pediatrics, cold cap um, that we use for hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy in, uh, in neonates to prevent brain damage. Um, this is so cool. Um, yeah, you're right, Josh. When, when a tissue tries to work anaerobically, it tries to work without oxygen, um, there are a bunch of byproducts that are created, which is actually damaging to the tissue. Um, and that actually recruits, you know, inflammatory cells like neutrophils and macrophages, and those things start causing damage and breaking things down. When this happens in the brain, it's irreversible. Right now, we have no way to take care of that. So, you know, you can just slow all the metabolic processes down. And I'm guessing a lot of our viewers or listeners are thinking, well, what then, you know, how do you get them back? Can you really bring them back from that level of hypothermia? Well, yeah, that's the kind of the cool part is if you slowly warm and slowly reperfuse the organs, including the brain, you actually get minimal damage as the slope of the temperature goes up. 
Now, minimal damage is not no damage. EPR does have its drawbacks, and you can suffer cell damage and even varying degrees of frostbite when the body is warmed up and blood Mm -hmm. flow is restored. And why exactly why this happens isn't isn't completely clear as you know your veins and arteries don't really get frostbite your skin does Mm -hmm. but certain medications may be able to counter the effects so the ultimate aim is for patients to survive without any significant neurological defects but if you have to choose between dying and coming back maybe just a little bit slower or with some neurological defects i feel like most people would choose the option that results in survival in that setting right especially if you know, it's an acute thing that's happening to you, like trauma that you didn't want to happen. Like this isn't, this isn't recovery from like a chronic illness or something like that. Now this has already been tested and worked on animals like pigs. So, you know, we've kind of moved to the point where we can take it to human trials. So Tisherman's team is going to study this with the initial pilot study, the, the proof of concept, as it were, is going to be 10 people will be tested on this new EPR protocol. And there is going to be a some degree of randomization because there will be controls with 10 others. And the controls they're choosing are going to be compared against similar age and disease-matched conditions who arrive when Tisherman's team is not present. So if you're one of the 10 people who arrives and the team is there, great, you're enrolled. If you show up and the team's not there, you're a control. Uh, And since people whose hearts have stopped due to acute trauma are incredibly unlikely to survive, informed consent by the patient is not technically required. However, In an effort to be a good, responsible, ethical scientist, Tishman has taken out ads in the local paper that allow that tell people how to opt out of the trial if they wish. So if you're walking down the street and you get shot and you decide, you know what, if that were to happen, I don't want to be one of these experimental 10 subjects potentially, he tells you how to opt out. Um, And he says he has already tested it on at least one person, although... I couldn't find any word on whether or not that person survived. It's got to be kind of censored for now. Uh, and we have to see if he can publish that result sometime in the future. But yeah, th- they're not allowed to just like talk about this experimental stuff. Just, to, you know, this was the result kind of thing. I'm amazed. I love this stuff. Uh, with the pig trials, Tisherman's famous pig. I'm sorry. So, <laughs> uh, any, any Charlotte's Web fans out? They cooled the pig down for actually three hours and were able to resuscitate it. So it wasn't like the surgeons had to rush and say, "Oh my God, you know, if we go over a certain period of time, we're going to start to lose things." You know, they they kind of gave themselves a good block of time to operate and. See save the the experimental animal um and they were able to revive it so that's pretty amazing and they um, all went I'm, out I'm for saying. a delightful pulled pork and bacon lunch oh my god so let's move on to our our next study so now we've talked about magnets we've talked about cold but another another study that is getting really exciting and has been building over the last several years is using sound waves to treat diseases. And this is not, again, just like our other ones, as we move from the past, 
rocketing into the future, this is not necessarily a new idea. We've used ultrasound to break up kidney stones. We've mm -hmm. used ultrasound to obtain images, but we've never really used ultrasound in the way that it is being presented in this next study. And this is taking place, the current study is taking place at West Virginia at the Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute, where mm -hmm. Dr. Ali R. Rezai is a neurosurgeon who is currently in the midst of performing phase two trials using focused ultrasound to treat early stage Alzheimer's. Now, there's a lot to unpack right there. First off, we have exactly zero effective treatments that have been shown to do anything for Alzheimer's. There's a whole bunch of meds that in my personal, if not professional opinion, are about as useful as Flintstone vitamins. <laughs> there's, and, there's a and, tiny bit of extended, you know, cognition, you know, for some period of time in some patients, you can slow the progression of dementia. You know what else is said to slow the progression of dementia? Doing crosswords. And if I can sit there and enjoy my Sunday times and have it be just as effective as swallowing a pill every day, you know, we're, we're talking about no real effective treatments. Although right. by all means, do crosswords, eat your Flintstone vitamins. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not going to do you harm. This all started with a study in Toronto at the Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center, which during the phase one safety trials showed that using ultrasound, you could reversibly open the blood-brain barrier. Now, that is huge because the blood-brain barrier is in place for a reason. Imagine it is like the wall in Game of Thrones. You, There are a couple ways to get through for a few things that are permitted to be there, but by and large, it keeps everything out, both helpful and harmful. So finding a key to unlock that door is the first step in more directly treating the condition. So how does it work? Well, by using these ultrasound waves focused through a specialized helmet, which looks... <laughs> <laughs> it is. Now, some of these guys are using like a single element transducer, but um, I, yeah, I think the trial that you're talking about um, that... Guys, we, we have the show notes down there. You can actually look up the clinical trials on the Focused Ultrasound Foundation website. This one does, uh, I think, supposed to like make you look a little like Magneto, I think, right? I'm torn between Cerebro or like yeah. the Weapon X helmet. Like I just, I don't know what comic book to direct you home listeners to to describe this helmet. But it's got <laughs> a specialized helmet with over a thousand uh, ultrasound probes that can be aimed to target a precise spot in the brain. And this is coupled with microscopic bubbles that are injected into a small area. And then the ultrasound is, <laughs> this is spinal tap. We crank yeah. it up to 11 <laughs> yeah. and oscillate them at a specific frequency. And when you start shaking those bubbles, it will open up the blood brain barrier by creating gaps. And then you can get kind of medications in. Uh, now, that's one, that's one possible application. That was the phase one safety trial, just how to open the blood-brain barrier. But as we already mentioned, medications, by and large, have not really proven to do anything at this stage or any stage for Alzheimer's. Right. So the focus of the West Virginia study 
the team is targeting the hippocampus and the memory and cognitive centers of the brain that are the ones most affected by uh, patients with Alzheimer's and lar collect large amounts of plaques and tangles. And the idea here is you oscillate those bubbles in those specific centers of the brain to break up the plaques. You kind of shake the brain from the inside out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Look, I'm doing the best I can. No, no, no. You're, you're absolutely <laughs> right. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, and I, I was looking through these papers as well because I was having trouble understanding whether, you know, the ultrasound itself was the therapy or whether, you know, you had to couple the ultrasounds with something else like, you know, drugs that could like pass through the blood brain barrier. But I think originally, like after they got through safety studies, they actually saw that the ultrasound itself can be used to kind of like break up some of these plaques and such am i am i saying that right yeah so the way and again because these are early trials and data hasn't been released as they're still ongoing it's really tough for mm -hmm. us to, to expand out on some of what they're studying simply because we don't have the data i can't tell you what their exact protocol is because they haven't released those papers yet this shaking of the brain through Cerebro succeeded in opening up the blood-brain barrier for a record 36 hours, which was a source of both amazement and not a little amount of concern among the scientists. They're like, oh, we didn't expect to be that successful in opening the blood-brain barrier up because that also opens up the possibility of other things getting into the brain that shouldn't be there. The idea is they're trying to figure out, is it do you shake the plaques loose and then can you now target these loose plaques with medications or is it better just to do with the ultrasound alone and that provides significant clinical impact? Right now, we don't know, but it's, it's another potential method of treatment into Alzheimer's, which affects a huge number of our aging population and will likely affect a large amount more. So finding any method of treating it, whether it's pure sound waves or whether it's using sound waves to make the brain more amenable to medications, both are excellent routes of research to pursue. There are a lot of blocks to this. Um, you know, when you have Alzheimer's, more than likely there are comorbidities with this, right? You Maybe, you know, you've had a heart attack and you have a stent in your heart um, or a pacemaker and now you can't undergo an MRI. Well, um, a lot of these studies, you have to undergo an MRI so that you can A, diagnose and B, uh, make sure that there's nothing wrong with the brain to kind of start with. You have the right diagnosis, etc. It's possible that you have a bleeding disorder or you're on blood thinners or liver disease. So Josh, for a lot of people, they're actually going to be excluded from this if they have comorbidities with their Alzheimer's dementia. But you know, for those people who are included, I think the best thing about this is they're really testing this on early onset Alzheimer's first. So the investigators, all of these clinical trials that are ongoing, they really want to see if you can attack Alzheimer's disease early rather than later on to actually preserve the cognitive damage um, that you 
that you might suffer in the future rather than trying to actually reverse the damage that you've already undergone. Right. So almost like vaccinating your brain. And again, mm-hmm. the reason, so the, all these preclinical studies, which are being carried out around the world in Canada, in the US, in Paris, the whole idea is the first thing you open up the blood brain barrier and you can reduce the incidents as well as you can put into these micro bubbles that are oscillating to open the blood brain barrier up anti-amyloid antibodies disease modifying Mm -hmm. drugs and anti-tau antibodies which are studies being done in australia so i'll i'll link in the show notes the focused ultrasound foundation and there are so many papers i i just had to stop reading There's, (laughs) There's, <laughs> I couldn't go that deep. It it was like being in science Wikipedia. The, um, this is early stuff, right? You know, we're in phase one, phase two trials, and a lot of the papers that you're going to see on the uh, the source that we're going to give you, um, they're actually foundational kind of work. Um, so they're looking at stuff in tissue culture or a mouse model. So this isn't something that's like, boom, ready for prime time, but we're kind of on the verge. And I, I think it would be pretty amazing if this something like this just shifted our whole understanding of how to treat Alzheimer's. You know, we were always going after a chemotherapeutic approach, right? You know, try to give something to increase acetylcholine or, you know, maybe try somehow to chemically attack the tau tangles or the amyloid. And this is completely different. This is like surgery. It's mechanical removal. And here is, Um, and let's go into a couple of the mechanisms by which it works. All right. So mm -hmm. we've said we're simply putting tiny little bubbles into the brain and then using an ultrasound to shake them up. But but that can have a range of effects. The first is thermal ablation. When you shake something fast enough, you heat it. That's how a microwave works. And if you heat something up, you can denature proteins or tangles, and that can lead to a death of a cell, which is why it has to be focused. You can also get Mm -hmm. mechanical tissue destruction just from the rapid shaking. That's why we tell you not to shake babies. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> the like one of these effects is known as cavitation. When you shake these bubbles fast enough, they collapse and turn into almost a little black hole. It generates enough force to suck in the things around it and sort of disrupt the cell areas. Not to mention, when you disrupt the blood-brain barrier, you're also disrupting the cell barriers of the surrounding cells, which means drugs that may not have been able to get into those cells now can because the walls there are a little have increased permeability. Uh, So you've got heat, you've got cavitation, you have increased permeability, and you have kind of even vasodilation. So blood vessels can widen, allowing even more immune system components to reach an area. That's four effects just from one shake, shake, shake it off. (laughs) I'm super excited because this is going to spin off a bunch of things, right? So, you know, we can't get antibiotics very easily into the brain past the blood-brain barrier. And that's a big problem when trying to fight meningitis or an intracerebral abscess. Um, So this would be absolutely amazing 
technology, you know, all of a sudden you open up the blood brain barrier and you can get antibiotics through, or you can get, uh, you know, an, an antibody or phages or whatever you want in there and, you know, fuck up those bacteria. So the spinoff technologies that are going to come off of this uh, absolutely rock my world. Yeah. So it's, it's another one, like every time I found a new study for, for this journal club, I just kept getting more excited. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, that's so, no, that's so cool. No, that's so cool. Yeah. And then I reached something where I had the simultaneous reaction of that is so cool. And I'm deeply disturbed. <laughs> we should pump the brakes a little bit. This isn't going to cure everything, obviously, not just right out of the gate. Um, we have to wait for these clinical trials to go through. Um, you know, we're in phase one to two kind of right now, moving to phase three. Um, and we also have to see how these patients do over time, right? A lot of our subjects that have enrolled in these studies have only been observed for, you know, maybe a couple of years, a couple of months, even some of them. Um, so we have to see how this impacts, you know, long term, you know, is this a permanent fix? Is this going to take regular, constant treatments, maybe for the rest of this person's life? Um, th there are a lot of unanswered questions. So let's, let's drift away from from the future well let's drift away from the medical applications and into one story mm. that i just wanted to include because i yeah. i can't unhear like i just can't stop thinking about it and i don't know if that's a good uh, thing or not yeah <laughs> before before you guys go down there to the show notes just brace yourself it's it's it looks gross and this not safe for work kind of warning. So it's yeah. safe for it's not a nipple for goodness sake. No, oh, oh heavens no. <laughs> so if there's one large complaint directed at the younger generation, the ones who keep saying "Okay, boomer," it's that they're largely glued to their phones, and you know each <laughs> new generation interacts with other humans less and less all our we've moved from say dating by being set up with people to swiping left and right on a phone we used to have conversations with our friends over the phone and now we all text and do emojis there's no real human interaction anymore and this is something that you know really kind of bothered uh scientist mark tessier at Telecom Paris in France. And he mm -hmm. wanted to know how could we bring human connection uh, back into communication? And he's done a lot of various studies that involve this, including putting skin or a skin like substance on a robotic human finger. Well, uh, but, to but, just take a little thing, he hasn't actually taken skin and then put it on. I said skin like. I said skin like. Yeah, yeah. These, these are. Yeah, I mean, you're going to describe the actual thing in just a bit, but yeah. Um. So this particular one, his he in order to <laughs> just like freaking like Buffalo Bill, <laughs> like trying to make a skin suit, and then all of a sudden turning to its robot like it puts the lotion on the skin. Well, what if Buffalo Bill worked for Steve yeah. Jobs? And instead oh, of on. and instead of making a skin suit, he made a skin phone case. Okay. <laughs> You're so gross. 
Yeah. Yeah. I suppose, for instance, you know, in order to, you know, it, we have OK Google and Alexa and these kind of things now, and you have to get to the surface of your phone that you can touch and tap on it to wake it up and stuff. I suppose if your phone was covered in skin, you could communicate with it or interface with it by like I poking or pinching or tickling from any angle you know, in order to get it to do various things. Well, in fact, that's exactly what he did. He covered a phone in artificial skin. Sure. And, and it's it's creepy looking, but yeah. <laughs> it comes in it, like it comes in two Well wait, let's talk about this. If you watch yeah. the video, and I'm of two minds about whether I should tell you to watch the video, yeah. <laughs> the prototypes come in two different versions. There's a simple, single-toned skin option and mm-hmm. an ultra-realistic <laughs> option for the discerning fake flesh connoisseur. <laughs> it looks like a flesh brick. Oh, God. It's It's made up of multiple layers, which is pliable copper wire between an epidermis and a hypodermis Mm -hmm. of silicone and they're molded to resemble the texture of skin and when you press on it you create a circuit by interlacing the copper and silicone together so it completes a circuit and that's how you get sort of that feedback now the the part that's very funny or disturbing (laughs) is this skin is programmed to associate different gestures with kind of certain emotions as part of this study. So sudden hard pressure on the phone is associated with anger and tapping is a means of seeking attention. You can turn your phone on by touching the back of it uh, while sustained contact and stroking are associated with providing comfort. And look, let's be real here. 100% guarantee that this will end up used in porn in some way. Oh, this is going to be, this thing's going to be used for fucking so fast. Just, this is going into sex bots and Terminators. <laughs> just no, not a doubt be, in my mind. It's going to be the same thing, like goddamn Blu-ray. <laughs> it's the, the sex industry is going to, like, just perfect this technology, and then it will end up on iPhones. I know it. I just, I know it. I know it. Oh, now, my God. <laughs> now, despite all her quite understandable horror at this um scientists scientist tessier has good intentions and his his goal is to explore touch in human computer interaction and as part of his phd studies he says when we're talking to someone face to face we often can use touch to convey affect emotions and generally enrich the discourse if i'm sitting there having an end of life discussion with somebody i'm you know touching them on the shoulder i'm introducing myself to my patients with a handshake you know even very general things that establish that rapport that bond of trust that you simply can't get if you know you don't often see doctors and patients texting each other until they've had an established relationship sure so he's trying to bring the sense of touch and communication back into uh the or he's trying to bring the sensation of touch back into human communication which has been scientifically shown to increase bonding recovery healing uh, decrease feelings of loneliness and sensation and you know sure but does your phone feel held no. <laughs> um, so there is some part of this that you know if you're developing 
a robot or something with a conscience or with a consciousness even that you would like to have this type of an interface, this kind of a touch interface. But even from a really simple standpoint, I've got to say that, you know, our interactions with our devices right now, you know, you have a capacitive touchscreen. That's pretty much all you have. You can tap, slide. There's some gestures you can do kind of like, you know, when you're, but when what you're, if I want to pinch or tickle? Yeah, but what yeah, if I want to? And now you ha- <laughs> now you have a more wider array of gestures that you can use for various things. So you know, you know, you could, for instance, you could program it. You know, to say, you know, you pinch it in a certain way means, you know, I'm hungry. Please find me sushi on Yelp, like specifically that kind of a thing with a single gesture. And it was presented at the ACM Symposium on User Interface Software in New Orleans. And the next step, are you ready to scream? The next step is to make the skin more realistic. Uh, They've already developed a phone case, computer touchpad, and smartwatch you know, in case you want an extra mm-hmm. band of skin around your skin uh, to demonstrate how it works. Mm-hmm. And now they want to make it more realistic, including embedded hair and temperature features. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what yeah, phones need, yeah. hair. Previously, sure. previously, Tessier designed a robotic finger that enables a smartphone to crawl across a table. I I love the way that this is advancing, right? Because this is an aspect of, (laughs) well, I I do because, you know, right now we're thinking about what we can do with a phone, you know, how we can better interact, et cetera. But this is the type of thing that can go into, you know, can we uh, build a, a, a smarter robot or an AI that's actually, interfacing with us on a level that we understand that the that the robot understands um you know and and can you teach an ai something like closeness or compassion um because now it can literally feel um you know the the way that this is going in terms of like organic mimicry there are so many applications for this so i i actually really love it um I know it's a little creepy right now because it just looks like a flesh brick, but I think that we have applications for things like interface and, you know, robotics and AI, but, you know, I, could this have a medical implication? Maybe, maybe well, this is like well, my skin for a person who's got Well, my Star Trek loving friend. This is the first step yeah, on yeah. the road to data. Oh, that's true. You're a right. computer that just wants to be hugged. So uh, <laughs> that's it for the world of tomorrow. <laughs> Let me go away from the tech world. And for this week's Just the Tip, we'll yeah. go to the natural world. And mm-hmm. I went at one point with a couple of our other co-hosts on a safari to Zambia and Kenya. And during that time, we visited Makuni's Big Five Safari in Zambia, which essentially runs an animal rehab center. And when I say animal rehab, I don't mean dogs and cats. I mean the Big Five animals. And they have 
Oh, no. <laughs> We're talking about, you know, when you're going on safari, like, like I want to see some big animals that I can't see anywhere else. You're talking about I'm talking about lions and cheetahs mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the occasional warthog that may wander through. And they do offer safaris. <laughs> so okay. what they have is a number of uh, big cats and a few other wild animals that are, while certainly not tame, are used to humans because they have been cared for. And for one reason or another, they require some additional help. Some of them need physical therapy. Some of them are too old or uh, feeble or diseased to be able to successfully survive on their own in the wild or without a pack. So Makuni kind of takes them in the ones who can't survive on their own and gives them a place to live and stay. And unlike the problematic tiger temples in Thailand and things like that, where they're chained up, these animals have free run of the area. They're still living as they would naturally, but they allow the gameskeepers to interact with them. And then by extension, they allow people who are not trained in such to interact with them. And the end of result of this story is I got to hug a lion uh, while two gentlemen with, you know, very large hunting rifles stood near enough to, I'm guessing, shoot me if anything happens, because they sure as heck weren't going to lose the lion. <laughs> And it yep. is an absolutely wonderful place to go visit. If you're going on safari, you know, a, a typical safari, you never know if you're going to actually see an animal or not. I mean, there's certainly a good chance, but you drive around all day and you cross your fingers and you hope. If you go to Makuni Big Five, not only do sure. you get to actively see two of the more famous animals, lions and cheetahs, but you can walk with them. You can actually walk a cheetah on a leash because cheetahs are a lot like dogs, it turns out. <laughs> there are all kinds of pictures online, right? With like cheetahs making yeah. friends with a puppy and then yeah. they grow up. So together. you get a chance yeah. to walk cheetahs, to pet lions. Um, and again, you can see the animals themselves are very well cared for and they don't really sleep in cages unless they need to be protected from other animals. So highly recommended if you make it out there and uh that's it for this week you guys it's, it's i was so excited i just kind of ran when when the nice. least exciting part of an episode is hugging a lion you know we're doing something right that's it for that's this true. week as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback if you'd like to support us spiritually emotionally or financially links to do that are in the show notes along with a whichever sources we use to research this episode. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Santosh and our other co-hosts. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Hi, guys. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.